My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. My guest today on Building Bridges to the Future is James Ball. James has written a fascinating book about the internet, a book that everybody should read. I think that's definitely something that I want to say, having appreciated it myself. But James, I know you were a writer, but how would you describe yourself? I would probably describe myself as a journalist and an author in that order. I've spent most of my career as a reporter and a lot of that covering either tech or economics or where the two of them crash into each other. Well, a lot to talk about in your book, but I'm going to impose on you the question we ask everybody at the beginning of this podcast, which is, James Ball, what's your big idea for the kind of new era we might be moving into? I would say that essentially we are moving into an information era, an internet era, which is, I think, an uncontroversial idea at this point. But what we need for that is a matching sort of new social contract. What we almost forget is sort of when the industrial era came in and factories and railways and all of these sort of revolutionary things to our way of life, on average, they improved it a great deal but they also created huge wealth inequalities. They created pollution. They created all of these sort of externalities. And they did very little for a lot of the people who were sort of working in those factories initially. People went from being independent, skilled workers to sort of people who were disposable for the owners. And if we sort of talk about tackling the Gilded Age or tackling the consequences of it, Antitrust and trust busting obviously jumps to mind. People like Rockefeller were taken on. Some of the monopolies were broken up. But the actual response to these was much, much larger than that. This was sort of how we got the birth of modern welfare states. It's how we got the trade union movements. It's how we got health and safety laws. To a lot of extents, it's played a role in parts of state education and all sorts of other aspects of how we see our relationship with work and with the state. And that's been a pretty good settlement. It meant that we ended up sharing a lot of the benefits of these new technologies that otherwise would have centralized power and centralized money. I think with the internet, we have a habit of looking at it and seeing it centralize power, centralize money and act in some very similar ways and also cause quite a lot of harms in similar ways. We know that it, say, moves money away from high street shops. It sort of makes Walmart almost look like a cosy mom-and-pop company. We see what it can do to our politics. We can see this sort of cyber warfare going on around us. We don't really seem to talk about tackling that in the same scale. We talk about breaking up Facebook or something like that as if that would be a revolutionary action rather than probably not nearly enough. So we need new rules to sort of decide on 
our economic well-being and our social well-being for this era. And I think if we at least acknowledge that the internet's not this agnostic, neutral, new technology that has coincidentally created huge international monopoly companies, but that's a feature of it and something we have to learn to adapt, just as we did with railways and other sort of generations of technology. Once we accept that, we can start looking at the actual details of the solutions. So before we get into some of the kind of specifics of the book, I was fascinated by your motivation in writing it. So it's often said, isn't it, that fish don't know about the existence of water because it's simply where they reside. And in a sense, the idea of writing a book explaining the internet is almost like writing a book explaining water to fish. It is just our reality, isn't it? There wasn't a sense in which you felt, well, it's too late to do this. It's so ubiquitous. It's so completely interwoven with our lives that the idea of doing something as basic as getting people to understand how it actually works. Tell me about what motivated you to do that. I think it was because I realized I hadn't really wondered about it myself, despite sort of covering this stuff. You know, you use the analogy of fish and water. I ended up thinking about sort of plumbing and taps in our homes. And it's that thing of realizing I don't really actually know what's involved in taking water from a reservoir and making it work so that I turn something in my bathroom and water appears. But we've had plumbing for a very long time. Most of us 20 years ago didn't have the internet in our home, let alone also having it in our pocket and maybe about 16 other tablet and smart devices around us. But it has immediately become ubiquitous. And yet it didn't exist at all as a technology 50 years ago. And almost no one used it until 20 years ago. And It was when I was covering a quite narrow story to do with internet security, and I started to have to talk to some people about the rules. And you realized that these people had sort of built little bits of it when it was a tiny little system used by a few hundred computers in universities. And suddenly, almost as if they blinked and looked up, it was critical infrastructure for the world. And... I was thinking, well, if this is true in their little corner of it, where else is it true? How far has this extended? And what does that end up meaning for us that this has happened sort of so unscrutinized and in such an sort of unconsidered way? And approaching it from that perspective, James, what were the things that were most eye-opening for you, most surprising? I don't just mean individual facts, but the book goes kind of sector by sector or player by player. Which parts of the system were you kind of most surprised by? Do you most underestimated in terms of its significance? I think often actually just the coded rules, not even the laws governing things like how data flows across the internet or that sort of thing, because this is now our vital communications network. And The physical route, as in which cables your signal tracks down, you know, when we're talking now, when people are listening to this, is governed by a protocol that was literally drawn up on the back of either two or three napkins in the 1980s. Yeah, I was sorry to read that those napkins have gone. They've been reproduced, but the original napkins, they would be wonderful artifacts, wouldn't they? They would. Someone's got a photocopy of two of them. (laughs) The two guys who sort of drew on them disagree on whether there was a third or not. 
One of them insists there was, the other says there wasn't. And they knew this wasn't how you would set something up to have it still in place 30 years later. But it was one of these, well, we need a stopgap solution for now. They built something and then no one ever really replaced it. And there's all sorts of little bits like that where you sort of realize you've got this network where the bits of it that we see, you know, that's our shiny new computer or our new phone. And we use it to visit something like Google or Facebook, which are these multi-billion dollar companies with their amazing headquarters and huge data centers. And then the bit in between, no one's really in charge of. No one's ever sort of looked at this and gone, well, what do we need to do now that this is a network with more than half the people in the world on it? Now that this is a network that is critical to the functioning of our democracies, to our economy, to all sorts of other things. And it sort of leaves people in the process of everybody knows someone needs to start taking this seriously and start thinking about it and start patching some of the holes. And there are people who are trying, but because it's all sort of run by very sludgy consensus, you've sort of got this very odd world in the middle where sort of no one really knows what happens. It's all immensely complicated and it all feels like it's creaking and falling apart at the seams a bit. That was what I thought in that part of your book about these kind of protocols and systems that make it all work, which is that I'm sitting here, if I want to find out whether West Bromwich Albion are going to buy a decent striker for next season, this incredibly specific piece of information, I can go on the internet and I can have all the knowledge in the world of that, apart from possibly what's inside the head of the manager. It's going to be there in a millisecond. It's really bizarre that behind something that seems so unbelievably efficient and clever and brilliant and fast, there's this kind of system which when you describe it and you kind of slow it down and you you kind of describe how it is actually happening, the relationship between my request and the information that I've requested coming back to me. It's remarkable when you see that that system almost feels like it's kind of held together by string and sellotape. It's a little bit like the whole sort of Wizard of Oz, you know, behind the curtain and then just suddenly it's a couple of bellows and and someone stamping frenetically. A lot of it ends up feeling like that. There is, of course, some absolutely extraordinary engineering to make things work as quickly as they do. This is big money. There's a lot of effective stuff there. But by its nature, the way information flows across the internet, it bounces around from one place to another. And each of these sort of servers we think about or our internet service provider, you know, BT or Virgin or whoever, you know, it literally just bounces across different people's computers and equipment until it gets to the right place. And so I try and talk about those steps for a few different activities in the book. And there are moments where your data will bounce across to the US and back to get from London to Birmingham which, you know, some traffic jams, we might wish we'd done that ourselves, but it's not a classic route. Now, that can be a real strength of the internet. It means it's hard to cut it off unless you're a nation state, really. So the cables under the internet, actually, thinking about this, they're not as big as you would think. They're more or less hosepipe width. And things that genuinely happen to them include fishermen catching them in their nets But also there was a little phase with some of them where sharks would attack and bite through them. 
And so you'd have one of the big backbone of the internet, transatlantic fiber optic cables, and a shark would have bitten through it. And someone has to go and fix that. But the internet's quite good at working around those and keeping working relatively well for it. So this sort of slightly chaotic behind the scenes picture can be part of its resilience. And actually, this was almost why the internet was funded in the first place. But it's also one of its vulnerabilities, because essentially it does mean that a lot of the time you're using the internet, you're just bouncing around a lot of other people's computers, almost saying, hey, do you know where Google is? I want to ask them about West Bromwich Albion. As we get more encryption and more security, we're telling less people less stuff, except through advertising. But it's quite a odd system behind the scenes. And not built for resilience. I mean, you know, resilience is the big buzzword at the moment because of COVID, of course, but people thinking also of climate change. This is a system that has to have kind of like resilience retrofitted to it because as you explain in the book when it was created nobody had any idea well some visionaries did but people didn't have any kind of practical sense of what it was going to end up being they didn't design it they designed it to be something that connected a few people universities they didn't design it to be something which connected the entire world it's sort of an interesting side of it in that to an extent it actually is all about resilience and to another it's incredibly fragile and as you say Almost no one involved thought it was going to become what it did now because basically a few professors agreed that they would network up initially four computers across four sites. And this was, of course, when computers were the size of rooms and worked by punch card. And once this vision was agreed, which was actually a bit of a, they'd had their arms twisted by the US government, they left it to their graduate students to actually do the thing. Now, you don't tend to do that if you think this is going to be your defining sort of mission in uh, your academic career. As people in academia have often said, grad students really are sort of the entry level of the ladder, so to speak. So they were just trying to come up with something for a bit of academic cooperation. But the reason that the US government, and it was actually DARPA, the sort of advanced research project agency that people like to link to Area 51 and aliens and mind control, you name it. It was them that provided the funding. The universities were asking them for more computers. And instead, they were told, no, we'll actually just let you network the ones you have. And it was to test a technology called packet switching. And this is still the fundamental technology of the internet. Whatever data you're sending, whether it's a WhatsApp message, whether it's audio, video, you name it, it gets broken up into thousands and thousands and thousands of little envelopes. And each one will more or less just say envelope one of 20,000. Each of those goes and travels across the internet, often by different routes to one another. They will arrive all in the wrong order and immediately get reassembled into the correct order. All of it happening very quickly, but it means it doesn't matter if there's a slight break in the signal. It doesn't matter if things go different ways. And it means that lots of other messages can travel interspersed with it. Whereas before then, if you had a phone line to somewhere, you were literally using that phone line. It's why operators had to connect people. So you might fully occupy one of 
10 phone lines between Chicago and Boston. And until you went off that, no one else could send anything. So it let people send way more data, which is a good thing. But also, let's say you've got five or 10 different phone lines and suddenly seven or eight of them are cut off. The internet, the way packet switching works, it means that actually your message will still probably get through. It's got a much better chance than through traditional methods. Now, why might a defense research project sort of during the Cold War era be interested in something like that? And it's essentially because second strike capability and the US wanted to be very, very certain that if the USSR struck them first, they would be able to send a signal to their ground-based nukes to retaliate. But you don't test a new technology on your nuclear network, you know, for fairly sensible reasons, I would have thought. And so it wasn't that the internet was ever supposed to be this second strike technology or this amazing thing. It was essentially someone went, what's something we don't really care about that's not all that important that we can see whether this stuff works? And so fairly unwittingly, the ARPANET, which became the internet, this network of universities, was testing that packet switching technology. And so you have this sort of quite strange thing where in trying to tackle one sort of societal menace, they created something that might have disrupted the whole thing even more. You know, it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, the relationship between pure science and applied science is such that pure scientists can never really know how their work is going to be manifest in the real world. But the internet's slightly different because it's always been applied science, really. But in this case, its architects didn't really have any idea of what it was ultimately going to end up doing. There is a big kind of accidental kind of element to this story. But let me move on to something which really isn't accidental. And I think that, you know, when we look at the internet, we all have our particular things that concern us, particular things that we want to be reformed, whether it's kind of breaking up the big companies or privacy or the way people are treated on social media or whatever. But I think if I used to choose one, and I think it was really underlined in your book, it's kind of, am I right in calling it programmatic advertising? So advertising, which is based upon sucking up your data and selling that data to advertisers. Tell me if I've got this right. I felt about that when I read about it, that on the one hand, it's pernicious because that capacity to follow us around the internet is something which is not just exploited commercially, but has got enormous potential in terms of kind of state surveillance. So it is really, as I think you put it in the book, it's, you know, it is that we're allowing almost anybody to open our mail listen to our phone conversations, etc., which are things we would have resisted enormously before the internet age. But the other thing that I was struck by was that it's not even the case that it necessarily works all that well. That if we were in a world where the only advertising that was allowed was, you know, if I went to The Guardian, there would just be the advert which people who go to The Guardian read, and it might change at different times a day, and the advert might be different depending on what the story was, but it would be based on The Guardian, not based upon me. It, it's not absolutely clear it would be that much less effective than all of this personalized advertising so we've got something here which has got enormous toxic effects and really isn't that commercially necessary have i got the wrong end of the stick james i think for the people you're talking about you've got the exact right end of the stick it is quite quite 
risky and dangerous for us as consumers and as citizens because the thing that we don't really realize with programmatic advertising and a large part of this in the book comes from the guy who claims to has a very good claim really to have invented programmatic advertising and he's the one saying that it's dangerous and awful and he was doing this while still chief exec of a programmatic ad company i should say it doesn't just share your data with the two or three companies that are showing you adverts it shares it with hundreds or thousands of companies who might have wanted to show you adverts so however much you think your privacy is being violated by facebook or cambridge analytica or whoever else the reality is really much much worse than you think but then there's how it works for the companies that we want to visit and we wouldn't mind looking at an advert on. You know, you mentioned The Guardian or The New York Times, and it doesn't seem like they do very well out of it. There are people who do do very well out of it. Programmatic advertising works absolutely brilliant if you're someone who's selling programmatic advertising or if you're a sort of venture capital funder behind it. And it's this quite toxic relationship between these two sort of types of company, between these sort of major investors and between the people who push this kind of business model that makes the internet be all about scale. And that creates a lot of the other knock-on effects. And so we've ended up creating this sort of perfect, terrible beast. And it's to do with how programmatic advertising follows us. So one of the basic, not very intrusive ways it can do that is let's say that you're a New York Times reader and first thing in the morning, you log on to the New York Times, new computer, you've never done anything else before. And it will put a couple of little text files on your browser saying you visited the New York Times this morning. Doesn't say anything other than that. It would just look like sort of 30 characters of gibberish to you or me. What happens when we then visit another site on the internet is that it can look and what it sees about you is that you're someone who's visited the New York Times lately. Now, if you're now on a really trashy junk site, it knows it can serve you quite a good advert because you're a New York Times viewer you're sort of more likely to be higher income, to be in certain parts of the world, to be interested in certain brands. And so this really junky sort of fake news websites can make a lot more money than it would have otherwise. Sorry, James, I just want to interrupt that because it's such an important point. I want to get it right. So when I see all this ghastly clickbait when I'm on the internet and you know, 99 times out of 100, I'll resist it. But I guess maybe sometimes I'm really tired and something comes up with an, I don't know, an incredibly attractive woman bending over and it says, oh, guess what happens next? And, you know, succumbing to my inner sexist man, I kind of think, oh, uh, click on that. You might think, well, that sends a message saying, you know, Matthew Taylor is sometimes so feeble and sexist that he's willing to click on something because he hopes he's going to see a topless woman. But it, it doesn't do that. What it says is, Matthew Taylor, who also likes West Bromwich Albion, reads The Guardian, you know, goes to BBC, blah, 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 all the other stuff, that's what the value of it is. It's the way that it's pulling me in in order to share all the other information. That's exactly right. And it's not so much that they're desperately interested in you as Matthew Taylor. It's that thing of, okay, we've got him, the bait worked, he's clicked <laughs> our very clickable 
you know, we've all seen those doctors don't want you to know this trick or you wouldn't guess what Susan Boyle looks like now type ones. Someone clicks them and it then goes, what's the most valuable adverts I can show them for this click? Now, if we just sort of had a normal thing, what brands would actually want to advertise next to content that rubbish? Not many. You'd pay a premium to advertise next to high quality, decent content. But now it can know, let's say the advertiser goes, I want to target people who read The Guardian. It used to be that meant that you had to advertise with The Guardian, which was great. That suited them. Now they can go, what's the cheapest site that I can see a Guardian cookie on? You know, one of these little tracking files. So you click that clickbait thing and suddenly they go, oh, great, this site's quite cheap. I can show you a sort of advert for something targeted towards you on this really low quality site. So the Guardian doesn't get its nice advertising premium anymore. And these people who make absolutely rubbish content because of programmatic advertising can get not nearly as good an advertising rate as a good site would, but a much better one than they get without it. And so by allowing these sort of tracking cookies, because that's what you have to do to advertise on the internet, the big respectable brands that make the content we think needs saving, you know, for news or for current affairs or to keep us informed or engaged, they accidentally end up creating the ecosystem for all of the trash as well. And this is what programmatic advertising is doing to us. And once you get your head around that, you start to see that we're really quite messed up by it all. And this is the story, isn't it? It seems to me that on the one hand, the internet is created for one set of purposes and then turns out to have unbelievable and massive utility for a whole set of other kinds of purposes. And that's the positive story, right? But then there's a negative story. And the negative story is that because in the end, the internet is fundamentally dominated by people who want to make money, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make money, but that is what their driving interest in is. And because of the investment models, they've got to try and make money quickly very often. That leads to a set of unwanted consequences. So one of them is programmatic advertising and all the crap on the internet, which is incentivized by the way programmatic advertising works. The other is social polarization, which is fed by the way that social media works and by our predilection for clicking on content, which reinforces our prejudices. And ultimately, James, this all reminds me, I think, of the view of technology that I first heard, I think, from Evgeny Moritzoff at an RSA event, where he said, on the one hand, don't succumb to technological determinism. There is no reason why technology should lead to a particular outcome, right? It's a tool. And this is a point you make right at the end of your book. But on the other hand, each specific application has its own behavioral consequences. And so you need to get into the detail of this. Twitter has consequences that are different from Facebook. WhatsApp has effects which are different from Instagram. And you have to get into it. And then ultimately, what that leads to, and it seems to me this is really, for me, the value of your book, is you have to understand this stuff enough to realize it could be designed differently. It could be designed differently without losing all the good things, but you could lose some of the toxic things. Absolutely. And if anyone took this book as a sign of we should turn off the internet or, you know, weren't things better in the 1950s, I'd really despair. It's about sort of going, if this is a tool, and it is, and if it does have consequences, 
then we have to build policy around it to make it have the outcomes that we want. It won't fix itself, but we don't have to live with it as it is. You know, there are these sort of consequences in the sectors that you mentioned. There's also just the intrinsic difficulty of the internet eliminates distance. So if you wanted to start a shop or a restaurant and you're in a small town, you could build a small okay shop or restaurant and it might do quite nicely for you. You might hire 10 people, be very happy with that. You don't want to be the next McDonald's. When you've got the internet and you've eliminated distance as an idea, you're competing with everyone in the world and you create this huge potential for winner-takes-all scale. That's the sort of macro problem of the internet and then all of these little ones. But what we tend to do is just sort of either not question it because we haven't thought about it or we assume it's technical and boring. And that, for me, really reminded me of how we used to talk about finance before the sort of finance crash of 08. Everyone went, well, it all works, but it's really boring and it's really detailed. They understand it and you don't need to. And I think what this is more than anything is trying to say, no, we do need to understand this. It's not boring. And once we do, there are some really valuable conversations we can have about it. Well, James, you've done a brilliant upsum at the end of our conversation as to why people should get a copy of the system. It is a book people should read because it's only by reading it that you'll kind of understand this perhaps the most powerful force in our lives, certainly the biggest change to our day-to-day lives over the last 20 years. And I left the book feeling a little bit less in the dark and a little bit more empowered. James Ball, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.